there's something very pleasurable about being scared. Very pleasurable. I think the function of them is to do with taboo. It's to do with repressed material. Julia Kristeva, the uh, French philosopher, talks about as stuff which has been thrown out of the culture, abandoned. These subjects, murder, violent death of every kind, madness, uncontrolled sexuality, need to go somewhere because they are the part of what it is to be human a regrettable part of what it is to be human, but nevertheless a part of what it is to be human. With those subjects, you can't talk about them over dinner, but there's a need to somehow or other express them. I had a father who thought that the stuff that came out of my imagination was pretty twisted up, which was actually good for me in a way because it made me very um, defiant. It made me very defiant about the kind of material that I was determined to make. If I was going to scare people, I was really going to scare people. If it was going to be sexy, it was going to be very sexy. If it was going to be fantastical, then I was going to blow people's minds. I would always be in some way or other a maker of extreme things. We'll tear your soul apart. Welcome to Speak All Evil, a podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent, here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. Hello. This week, pain and pleasure indivisible, which I think could be a tagline for this podcast, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're talking about Clive Barker, who burst mm. upon the literary horror scene in the mid-1980s after being declared, quote, the future of horror by none other than Stephen King, who also mm. said of Barker at the time, quote, he's better than me now. So that really changed everything and put Clive Barker immediately on the map. However, we now know that he was never going to be a mainstream household Stephen King type name. He was just way too weird, too wild, too kinky, too everything. Clive Barker is a lot. But he did become a household name in horror, in horror movies. We talked about Candyman back on our Say It Loud episode, and of course, the big one we are going to talk about this week, and a smaller one that I personally think is a bit underappreciated, although I'm getting the feeling that that is not necessarily shared by others at the table. Dave. <laughs> you always get to pick it up on the bad vibes. <laughs> or we just had a full conversation about it. I don't know. You're getting the, the feeling. Why don't, you, um, why don't you set the table for us? Sure. I wanted to pick something that was a newer Clive Barker offering. And I had remembered liking this movie, um, Midnight Meat Train. And it's directed by... Ryue Kitamara. I hope that's right. Uh, if it's not, um, whatever. I don't like your shitty movie anyway. Um, I don't know. I, this, I, my big question with Midnight Meat Train is you watch this movie and you just say to yourself, how was this made? <laughs> like, how did this, how did this get through? Um, like, if it was just like a regular horror movie with like 
Z-list actors, I would maybe have liked it more. Uh, it's just made it confusing. It stars Bradley Cooper. And it's like, there's no one in this movie. Uh, it was a Vinnie Jones uh, from, he's a soccer player who's from um, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and that kind of stuff. It's a star-studded cast. And I think that to me made me expect a better movie. It's basically a photographer witnesses something, uh, a murder happening on a train or a disappearance of a girl. And he investigates further. Uh, he's got this whole thing where the art gallery person played by fucking Brooke Shields. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> with like the worst yeah. dialogue you've ever heard. Not that she's an gr- amazing actress, but it's just like, was she just like, you know, like chilling wherever she lives and like in town for the weekend? Some, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then like she just comes out of retirement to do this movie. Like um, it, it made me feel like I was like tripping because of all like, why would these people do this? How did these everyone's manager agreed to do this? Um, and my thought was that <laughs> maybe it was because it was one of those deals where they did all the CGI after and they kind of ruined it. But um so he, he's investigating this murder on the train and it's, you know, it, it doesn't take very long at all to, it lays it right out for you that it's uh, this ju- guy with a Vinnie Jones with a giant meat hammer killing people and we don't know why. And that's kind of what the movie does is uncover like why he's killing people on the train with a meat hammer. Um, but there are, it's, it's a really open-ended plot. Um I'm sure that the the book by Clive Barker is much better. That's the thing that's tough with like, you know, Stephen King and Clive Barker. Clive Barker is a director in his own right. Um, and Stephen King is too. But a lot of people, you know, take their stories and they take liberties when they make the movies. And not everyone is Stanley Kubrick. It, it actually reminded me a lot of like Tokyo Gore Police, like the really like crazy Japanese uh, CGI violence like the eyeballs coming out, but there, there's some really good gore. Some really good gore mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, it's just very confusing. Uh, not as in plot. It's just confusing. Like, why? Why is this movie? <laughs> why? <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, I love the title, The Midnight Meat Train. And that really puts it out there. And that was the same title of the, it was a short story. I read The Midnight Meat Train a million years ago. I loved the story. I watched the movie the first time back when Netflix first started streaming. This one, The Midnight Meat Train, was one of their meager horror offerings. Uh, You guys might remember browsing through the very early uh, incarnation of uh, Netflix streaming and being like, oh, God, it's like Sleepaway Camp 5. Midnight Meat Train, you know, a couple other ones. Like, man, they got to get some oh, more I movies. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't say what year this was. Yeah, what, not what recent. Yeah, you movie? said it was like more recent, but it's more 2008. recent. 2008. Yeah, it's more recent than 1987, but it's not really. Oh, see, I thought it was more recent than that. I, I just came on my radar like a few years ago, and I thought it was just new. Well, it's under, you know, it's under scene. This didn't get a big release, and Clive Barker is on record having complained about uh, it it kind of got short shift, uh, didn't open in a lot of theaters. I didn't really think much of it at the time, but I actually liked it a lot more this time. I, I thought it was pretty damn good, and I didn't mind the CGI. That's obviously going to be a top complaint of anyone watching this movie, but 
I thought that the way that this movie totally committed 100% to an ultra-stylized sort of vision, that sold me enough on the CGI. I didn't mind it because the whole thing was so stylized that I thought it worked. It, like, really owned it. So I kind of liked that. Um, I thought uh, at first I was like, this movie has too hot syndrome. That's when you have, like, a gritty inner city bloodbath movie but somehow like everyone is like catalog la hot and you're like why why would everyone be so hot in this not like super hot but like you know mid mid la hot and then i realized i was looking at bradley cooper so that was Mm -hmm. a surprise i I didn't remember him being in this so blue eyes um i thought he was pretty good i was a little bit worried that some of you guys might take the wrong message from this movie one of my favorite quotes from this movie is Punctuality is a virtue for the mediocre. Delivered by Brooke Shields as the man-eating art gallery owner. I really liked that character. I thought that was, like, pretty classic, you know. I kind of thought she would maybe have a little more to do with the movie after her brief introduction. But no, she's just telling people it's cool to be late. So Mm. I didn't love that. Um, But I thought this was a solid... (laughs) I thought this was a solid B movie. This is a rental right now. um, And I thought it was pretty good. I had the opposite experience. I watched this like you, Trent. Like it suddenly was like one of like the first streaming things, and I was really interested in how, like Bradley Cooper and Leslie Bibb, and you know, well, we have a great cameo by Ted Raimi. Uh, like how this the caliber of a movie <laughs> was like just on streaming, and I lo- I loved it the first time. But here's why I think I loved it. I think that so many bad Clive Barker adaptations had come out and or so many shitty Hellraiser sequels had come out that I was starving for somebody to do like an even okay version of a Clive Barker story and like Dave when you were talking like you know Stephen King well like Stephen King adaptations come from like 1000 page novels so a lot of the criticism and a lot of the difficulty is you're trying to boil the ocean and have a thousand pages wow. down to ninety minutes, like ninety minutes. That's With great. With Barker, you have like thirty pages, and you have to make that the ocean. So, like, you have a puddle, and you're trying to make an ocean out of it. So, if Barker himself isn't doing it, it is tough to trust it. And to go to Dave's comment about the action, and and Trent, your comment, both of your comments about the CGI, like the director has done like some pretty serious like action shit but the cinematographer did like john wick and deadpool 2 just to kind of he has a a vast filmography but again the cinematographer is an action dude and has a huge music video catalog which i know comes up on the show a lot anyway i loved this when i first saw it i think because i was like so surprised that there was such a list or a minus list cast like all the way through when I watched it this time, I found it, like, so unbelievable. Like, I found the CGI unbearable, almost balanced out well by some good practical effects. But I also found, like, the character interaction just deteriorates as the movie goes along. Like, how does Leslie Bibb, who plays Maya... So, it's Leon. That's Bradley Cooper's character. He's the photographer. And he's out there, and he he does catch some, some gnarly shit, and he goes on a rabbit hole and loses his fucking mind. Then you have his girlfriend, Maya, played by Leslie Bibb, uh, who we know from Trick or Treat uh, and Hell Baby. 
and a lot of other things, but I love her in those. Uh, and underused Brooke Shields, um, you, like the, their relationship the entire time just doesn't make sense. It's like the things that Bradley Cooper does and the way that Leslie Bibb reacts, it's not reality. Nobody would ever have that kind of relationship, at least in my experience. The way that their friends react, the way that Brooke Shields is like a pro- – she's a cardboard cutout of Brooke Shields in a movie. And then the way the story progresses and ends, look, the imagery's fun. It's gross. It's Barker. It's There's some body horror. There's some good practical effects, like I said, that they try to balance the CGI. But literally, if you watch this movie from start to finish – Nobody can make an argument that this makes any fucking sense at the end of 90 minutes or however long it is. I thought this movie was interesting. I thought it was pretty grimy. There were some little bits, little twists going on. There was so much blood. I think that was my favorite part, just all the blood. Uh, I like the whole idea of this photographer like stumbling across this evil train butcher and getting in over his head. I thought it was pretty relevant to like internet sleuthing now, people like Mm. trying to solve murders, like, you know, on the internet, but being IRL and obviously getting in way over your head and into some dangerous shit. Um, But I feel like instead of stalking the evil butcher man, maybe he could have just listened to his hot girlfriend and like just took hot pictures of her for like a little bit. Um, But then she gets into it too. So it's all over. Um, but I was very happy to watch a young Bradley Cooper running around, um, especially once he got daddy-fied. Uh, that was pretty cool for me. I really liked that moment when he had like the Peaky Blinders thing going on, for sure. Um, <laughs> it did it for me. Um, but I think my favorite part of it was honestly the gore, because I just thought it was really fun. Like I like CGI gore. I think it's funny. Uh, I also really liked the first person shots like from the victims. I thought those were super intense, super powerful, um, very chilling. Watching yourself, you know, getting pulled through pools of blood, you know, that might uh, fuck your day up. But I thought it was just like a fun little spooky mid 2000s gory horror movie. And even though it was originally a short story, I didn't feel like it was stretched super thin. I didn't think it was like there were any like unnecessary parts. I think it was just kind of telling the story and, and I liked it. Um, and also for the record, I would like to say that Midnight Meat Train would make a great uh, porno name. <laughs> yeah, it would. It I, would. I, so. did, and did anybody look it up? Because I, I would probably place, <laughs> I think we should probably place a little wager right now as to uh, whether or not it already exists. I loved that right away, the, the strap handles in the subway right away looked like hooks. You got that yeah. in there. I mean, it's Clive Barker. Yeah. <laughs> like, those handles look very much like swinging hooks uh, that we'll see later on. But I'm, I'm curious, Kat, I, I want to get your take. Kevin, you mm. mentioned the relationship like not being realistic. And I thought that one part of that was when uh, Bradley Cooper's character presents his girlfriend with a ring and there's this big scene, and then he says, um, it's not an engagement ring, however, but it's an engagement 
to be engaged and they mm-hmm. have hot steamy somewhat violent sex over the counter and wow she's so turned on i've never seen a woman so turned on <laughs> by being engaged to be engaged by an empty I, box <laughs> I, I was curious cat what your thought about uh being engaged to be engaged well i am unmarriable apparently so i <laughs> I don't really have any thoughts on that. But thank you so much, Trent. Everyone, just so everyone at at home knows, uh, Kat looks very glamorous tonight. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Trent paid her a compliment by saying she looked like Marilyn Manson, but he meant Marilyn Monroe. Real, like, platinum. She's, like, well lit. It's It's, kind of distracting, actually. I don't know what you're doing over there, Kat. What about the, uh, the scene where... Uh, she's doing a strip tease for Bradley Cooper and walking backwards mm. and trying to seduce him. And he's taking pictures and weeping like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is just so weird. Like, it's when are you going to stop stripping and be like, are you okay, bro? Um, but I don't know. There's a lot of like relationship type things or just the relationship between all of the characters that. Uh, to me fell short and I, I wish that it was like if this was no CGI and no superstars the two good looking people if there was just someone beating someone with a blunt meat hammer and it, like made a thud and a little blood came out like you know like I would actually like this movie because I like movies that are just gore and shock value because I accept it for that but then when you have like a star study cast is like, what do you expect? Like who paid for this movie? Well, I liked that. Um, Cooper's character did the classic thing that I love when you get too deep into the case, he became obsessed. It reminded me of Manhunter. He became obsessed right. with trying to find what's going on on the subway. He shot the missing girl who somehow was in the paper the next morning. I thought that was a little fast for a missing adult. You well, she was usually... a model. I, yeah. I know, but still, Big like model. they print the paper at like girl. four a.m. How how is she still already you know that fast? She's in the news, but I liked him being so deep into the case that he didn't even care about his. Um, I mean, it's not his fiance; she's his to be fiance or whatever stripping for him, and he he can't stop <laughs> thinking about the murderers. He's got to got to get to the bottom of it. I like that. Mm. Okay, well, also. Microfiche, <laughs> ding ding! You get to check the microfiche box in this. Oh, I was gonna get oh, that. Yes. God damn it! Don't take that from me, Trent. I'd love pointing that out to you before you do, because you like it a lot more than I do. This is kind of a late one for microfiche, but it's in there. Has anybody seen Downrange? Another film by this director? Um, no. Is that the one about the people that just get randomly shot? Yeah, uh, with their car. Yeah, I like Downrange. I like that. Yeah. That's uh, that's such an understated movie yeah. compared to this. Yeah, this is the same wow. same director. I really like that one. Oh, I don't I'm usually sorry, um Ruhai, whatever. Yeah, I don't I don't I learn foreign names when it's not my week. I thought you guys would be on top of that. So <laughs> I, I don't know, but he, he did a great job. I think I did a pretty good job. You, you did, did you job, did a great job. Dave. Yeah. You did it. I thought that uh this movie, the the whole art uh thing, like pushing the artist to the, the limits of whatever is decent. Uh, reminded me a little bit of the Velvet Buzzsaw. Did you guys see that with Jake Gyllenhaal? No. And he was like an no, artist. No, I didn't. Huh. That's like kind of like this, but uh, like absurd and silly. Like you can definitely tell 
right away that that's what it's supposed to be like. Um, I don't know. Most usually Clive Barker scares the hell out of me. Usually it's like very scary. My favorite part of this movie, the part that uh, if I had to just watch one part on a loop over and over again would be um, when he takes the guy's teeth out yeah. and the fingernails and then he takes each Ugh. eyeball out. No. Uh, and there's a really good like hook in the ankle. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We've seen some, uh, some tooth extraction lately. We just saw that in the human centipede. This has a great tooth extraction. Uh, and then as you say, it goes to the eyeball extraction. Very good. Ugh. What was up with his weird polyps? Can we talk about those for a second? Yeah, his chest. Uh, yeah, I think it was meant to like be like it's t- it's like the toll it's taking on him interacting with these like whatever the hell the beings are at the end of the movie mm-hmm. that you're eventually presented to. Because so what we haven't really gotten into is that Bradley Cooper's character Leon he captures this model on film. He sees that she's gone missing. He starts to investigate the train. He finds Vinnie Jones's character Mahogany. Uh, as like clearly the dude that's killing everyone on the train and then you have to go down the journey of why and then everybody makes really really bad decisions and then you find out why kind of um so yeah i don't know vinnie jones's uh polyps and the things that he's cutting off himself i I think it was just more like like when he's opening opening the medicine cabinet and you see all the jars of them yeah oh my god so gross i (sighs) i think it's meant to like represent how long he's been doing this for these like entities that you meet at the end Mm -hmm. but i don't know why he's cutting he has all these the killer has all these polyps all over his back and chest his torso and he cuts them off and saves them in jars in his medicine cabinet and that made me wish that a david or brandon cronenberg would do a clive barker movie now that would be something to see maybe i'll i'll mention it to brandon yeah he's gonna be on the show next week so we can talk to him about it i thought that was a cool a cool little angle though i liked i liked the the body horror part of this the whole explanation at the end is terrible i don't remember i don't think that was in the short story i could be wrong <laughs> but i don't think it tried to wrap things up quite like that i will definitely agree with that it made no sense but i didn't really care cuz i by then i just i thought it was a good b movie you know this is not like some great thing but there's some good gore and um, there's some you know some fun stuff i loved uh, cooper undercover at the meatpacking plant he he decides to go in dressed up as a meat worker. He's in there. I'm like, what is he doing? I don't know. Doesn't matter. It was funny though. You know, it Weird. would have been decent as in like an anthology. Yeah, it had, yeah. It's, Thank it's you. styled like an anthology, and and it was written in an anthology. Yeah, so yeah. Maybe it was just too much movie, too much expectation for me. That's a great point. I, I would agree with that. I think this would be more at home in a, a shorter version, and then you don't need the stupid ending. That's that's where it really went wrong. Mm. If you put this in a shorter form, you don't need that whole thing. You have the uh, the great steak scene. We keep seeing these movies. I think that's kind of like a horror staple. We saw it in The Human Centipede. We saw it in Shitan. We've seen it many times where there's just a scene of somebody eating like a super rare steak. That's just, that's mm. just horror. At the end of uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow. The rare hamburger or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always <laughs> yeah, good. Great call. Yeah, I mean, I mean, every there, this movie has a ton of elements that are really good. It has, I mean, some okay acting. 
it it's shot beautifully. It like it's shot very dark, like it should have been, and especially like the the train scenes are incredibly engaging, especially as a horror fan. Uh, yeah, but it great. just just for me, like from point A to point Z, like it just doesn't hold up, like dialogue wise, character development wise, uh, and even like the 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 big end that they try to do. And they try to throw, like, the action sequence in where, like, you end up finding where this train is going. And they give you some great visuals. Like, obviously, Clive Barker, you have some skulls and some bones and some chains. But then they're like, we're going to now have a big action sequence. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, my brain immediately was like, and nope, we're done again. Yeah, you know what? I hated that. I hate, it's my least favorite, like, last refuge of a scoundrel is like, oh, it's the climax of a movie. Let's have a couple guys do hand-to-hand combat for five minutes. Like, that's really exciting. I really am here watching a Clive Barker movie so I can watch two guys fist fight. It sounds like you didn't like it quite so much as you claim, Trent. And in no way would Bradley Cooper ever last two seconds with that fucking guy. (laughs) Absolutely not. Like, Uh. he would have been sliced up right away. I just... That was unbelievable to me. I think he was sort of um, strengthened by his upset. Like the closer he got to the case and the closer he got to the killer, did, you didn't you notice like the more, because he starts out as a vegan. This is, a, again, an early, hey, Barker putting the vegan out there, the tofu guy doesn't eat meat. And so the closer he gets to this killer and the more embroiled in the case and obsessed he gets, so you have the whole, um, there's a conspiracy wall scene in this you have the classic scene where he yeah. has all the all the stuff on the wall and he's going crazy trying to tell his girlfriend about this conspiracy but over the movie he becomes more aggressive and then you have you have that whole sex scene and he starts eating meat so i think by the end that's why he could go toe-to-toe with the uh with the killer i think we also have to talk about how we have um uh, is it roger bart that plays jurgis who is uh like maya's best friend and uh, Brooke Shields, like like buddy that gets uh, Leon Bradley Cooper's character into like the art world, and I was like, why does this whole like narrative exist? And then Jurgis gets it dirty, mm. and then I was like watching it, and I was like, oh damn, that's the dude from Hostel Two, and he gets oh, it dirty in Hostel yeah. Two as well. Like he gets messed <laughs> up in that movie. Like he's good what at is it. This? Like. I don't, I would, I, I actually, maybe I would like this guy's agent. Like, just, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll play this, like, super messed up dude in this movie that totally gets it raw, like, at some point. Sure. He's in, like, a lot of stuff. I recognize him from, like, Pedestrian Fair. And then you have Ted Raimi just showing up for yeah, two what was, minutes. What's the Ted Raimi scene in this one, Kevin? You're, you're always, uh, that's like your microfiche. Where is Ted Raven? He's got to be in there somewhere. I mean, I don't even really know who Ted Raimi is. I assume he's some uh, relative and conspirator with Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi's brother. Cecil King is in this. He makes an appearance. Uh, The lesser known son of Steven. He he, he does it right. He has a podcast. That's what he does. Clive Spielberg. Ted Ted Raimi's the eye guy. Like, I didn't even bother writing down, like, his character's name because he's in it for two minutes, but he's the eye guy. He gets the hammer to the back of the head that actually pops one of his eyes out. Mm -hmm. And I love that scene. I was like, that is so cool, but still CGI. 
It's a flying eyeball. Every flying eyeball counts, whether it's practical or CGI, and this movie knows how to dot its I's and cross its T's. <laughs> this is like a movie that, like, if you watch it on home video, you think, like, oh, man, this must have been in 3D at the theaters. Yeah. <laughs> nope, it wasn't, because it, it, like, it was barely released in it theaters. It does seem like that. <laughs> the digital blood everywhere. It's really funny that, you know, like, some of these uh, people who just have elaborate deaths in movies they must have like a blast on the set like when they do the practical effects because they'll pull out like a a torso and and headpiece like that looks just like them and you know like exploded or whatever they do with the practical effects and that must be like a lot of fun i'd like to die in a horror movie same maybe maybe one day someone will have us all die in their horror Um, movie that would be fun I am sure my death will be horrible, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I want to go out like scanners. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's make a pact. Yeah. We're all going to go out like scanners. I'm not smart enough. Hey, how about this cat? If in 10 years you and I aren't dead, we'll kill each other. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Let's make it five. <laughs> Right, so Clive Barker week uh, continues, and we uh, obviously had to go back to the OG, to the original Clive Barker movie, which is Hellraiser. That's Clive Barker, writer, director, 1987, and it's based on one of his short stories, like we talked about earlier, called The Hellbound Heart. And essentially, what you have is... A kind of more confusing movie than I remember when I first watched it. And again, I watched this when I was very young. But you have a, a man who finds a box, the Le Marchand box, that I, I bet Trent will outdo me in uh, pronouncing later. And he has the box, and he's, he's in a foreign country. He brings the box home. He solves this puzzle box and ends up being dragged to hell and then somehow finds his way out of hell and then you have a family that you meet that has a tie to him. And essentially, it's this man trying to get enough people killed to give him blood to come back from hell and escape the, the, the hell-bound creatures that had him trapped. Um, I don't know how to, to, how to explain this movie. It's, it doesn't sound like it. it no, it's, it's <laughs> so fucking confusing. I, um, what? I really didn't think it was that confusing. No? Well, the, well, the way I look at the box is like, you know, you go to the person to like step on you with heels and insult you first <laughs> and get whipped. <laughs> and then you go to like the dominatrix wheel next. Yeah. And then you go to the really seedy part of town. And you're like, all right, I need the next thing. Yes. It's like a kink. I, I feel like this box is like a kink. Yes. And I, and you basically get tortured. It's, it's pleasures of the, of the flesh, like in just pain. And uh, <laughs> no, he talks about knowing, you know, uh, you won't know enjoyment unless you have extreme pain. 
But this guy goes to the edges and he basically sells his soul for this experience. And what you have is these collectors and it's like selling your soul to the devil. They're coming here and they want you to pay up. And um, there are some things that aren't explained. Uh, Blood, this guy dies from this apparently and, and blood spilled on the floor begins him uh regenerating his body so he has to he seduces his sister-in-law to keep giving him dead keep giving him people that he can devour Mm -hmm. and become whole again which i like that that was a big part of the movie uh because the subsequent sequels after that have been all this like space other dimensions uh, portals into other worlds and all this stuff but this is just a straight up horror movie uh, if she has to do his bidding and he has this power over her um, and then of course you know Pinhead and Chatterbox and that whole crew they actually don't <laughs> even come in till the end of this movie yeah. uh, when it's time for him to get his retribution yeah they're pissed, uh, they're so- pissed that he escaped hell so essentially the movie is like a guy trying to escape hell and then you you are introduced to these characters that are like nah you can't escape hell. But I mean I I feel like the way you could describe Hellraiser to anyone listening right now is like uh you have Cenobites in Pinhead. But it's so like when you watch the movie it's so much more complicated than that that mm. The nine sequels that this movie somehow created, like, literally took away from everything that the original Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 gave us in the horror universe. It's, it's, it's been cheapened over the years. So, like, when, when you're trying to describe the original, you're like, honestly, all I would say is, yeah, go watch it. Yeah, Kat, you mentioned having watched this when we um, watched Candyman. You, yeah. you you did extra credit and watched Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very curious, since you, you don't really like to talk outside of the podcast that much, I'm very curious what you thought of Hellraiser now that you are a veteran of this movie. Mm. Well, I just I like to save my thoughts for the pod. You know, I'm just mm, like gearing valuable. up, making sure I talk enough every week or else I get scolded. <laughs> oh, um, God. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I'll just let I'll just let everyone talk over you from now on. You won't talk that's, at all. In fact, I have a few things I, to say. I think Trent is out. trying to allow Cut you to, to talk more mm. so that we're not sexist. But I think in, inadvertently he's being sexist by putting so much pressure on you to talk. Uh, I feel very pressured. Okay, me and my breasts feel okay. a lot of pressure. Right there. Now. Okay, there we go. Genitals now. Okay, that's there good. It Here is. we go. All right, cut it out. I wouldn't consider breasts to be genitals. <laughs> I knew as soon as I said it, you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's because it's facts. You can't anyway, have people at home confused. Fucking Hellraiser. Uh, obviously a classic. Um, obviously really fucking weird. But I love it. I'm so glad I recently watched this movie and got to experience it again this week. A couple times because I kept falling asleep while watching it. So I definitely <laughs> tried to watch it a few times. Real engaging, real engaging movie, apparently, huh? <laughs> I'm just been sleepy. Um, all the special effects are obviously beautiful and gruesome, especially the Cinnabons or whatever, the Cinnabites, whatever they're called. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Yes. 
<laughs> yes. Daddies of the week, Cinnabon. <laughs> the Cinnabons, a little squishy goodness. Um, there are so many like irksome gore moments in this where you're just like, um, AKA like the nail to the hand. Obviously those hooks, I've said it before, I'll say it again, Clive Barker is so horny for hooks, it is unbelievable. Every movie, there's some kind of hook going into some kind of orifice or what have you. And so obviously we know what his uh, super kink is. Um, Just the whole premise of this guy being so uncontrollably horny that he has to get torn apart (laughs) to get his rocks off is, Mm, is, you know... It's a fun little tale uh, for the whole family. Obviously, Pinhead gets Daddy of the Week, though, right? Hmm. Thank you. I don't know. I'll go Frank. You can go I'll Frank. Go Frank. Oh no way! I was gonna say I was gonna say <laughs> Bradley to Cooper. So say Bradley, Bradley Cooper. Cooper was not Daddy of the Week. I I, w- I wanted him to be, but then I saw, you know, Pinhead talking at me, and I was like, mm, okay, he can get it. Um, mommy of the week, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Pain and pleasure, indivisible. I'd say my mommy of the week is gonna be uh, the little Miss like vagina neck lady. She was cool. I liked her a lot. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah. Tracheotomy. Mm. I'll give you a tracheotomy, and okay, then okay. his. <laughs> Sorry, it's got me all riled up. This movie, okay. Um, it's gonna take more than a tracheotomy. <laughs> Get advanced pleasure <laughs> syndrome like this guy. And then um, his brother's wife is like, yeah, I'll do anything for you because you banged me like really good this one time. Like she obviously has some weird issues going on. Did she probably expect that when she said she would do anything he wanted that she'd be like murdering people and like running from hellbound beings? Probably not. But still seems like homegirl's a little obsessed with the dick anyway um (laughs) this is definitely a movie i would put on in the background of a party uh with some acquaintances to see what would happen i think it'd be funny uh my only critique of this film is that i could do with about 50 percent less use of the word uh daddy (laughs) there's so much you're the biggest proponent of the word on this podcast though but too much. Yeah, if I hear come, come to, to daddy. daddy one more time, I'm like, sir, sir, please back away from me. But you wouldn't have known that it was him in the body of the other guy if he didn't have that catchphrase. That this was kind true. of like essential yes, to true. You know. It's a plot. Well, if if I can get in here, first off, mm-hmm. this is on Shutter right now. So if you got Shutter, this is an easy one. This is the directorial debut of Clive Barker. He was very unhappy with the uh, movie Rawhead Rex, which I almost picked for our Beast Mode week, but I decided to have mercy on everyone and not pick Rawhead Rex, another short story that was made into a pretty bad movie. Clive Barker was very frustrated, and he decided, being a Renaissance guy, because he doesn't just write, he is a visual artist. He paints and draws. He has written plays. So he decided that he was going to direct his own movie. He was going to make the movie of the Hellbound Heart and made this. And it's all about kink, really. This this movie kind of reminded me of... We had uh, Ben's Been Dead on the show a couple weeks ago. And he was kind of aghast at the types of material that you know we, we get off on here. And I, I sort of felt like we were like Frank 
and Julia in this. In this is all about the the love of the forbidden. It's all about the obsession with that which is like so stimulating and so sensual and such a, a an experience, and yet it destroys you. It brings you bad things. Like I feel like that's kind of how we are about horror movies. We're like the Frank in the situation. We need that kink. And this movie just had its um, 30th anniversary back in 2017. There's a bunch of stuff that Clive Barker did for that anniversary. There's a great interview in Guardian that's still online. Uh, if you search uh, How We Made Hellraiser, Clive Barker talks about how this was mainly influenced by sex, uh, S&M, particularly a club in New York. I think it was called Cell Block 28 or something that Barker used to go to, and they had a hardcore S&M night where they wouldn't even serve alcohol because people were that serious about their S&M. And he said it was the first time he saw intentional blood spilled. Um, so there's a lot of Clive Barker in this. He's a dark guy. Clive Barker, I think, is much darker than Stephen King. And he said in the interview about the 30th anniversary that he considers himself about a six on a one through 10 scale of S&M. So it's what? not... It's not for show. Clive Barker is very, very dark, and he's led, a, I think, a pretty a dark life, if you know anything about where he is at now. He has not had a great time lately. I do oh. think, Kevin, I, I would agree with you a little bit. I think that it's not complex, but this movie, like, and maybe it's because it's his first movie that he ever directed, it wants you to understand everything. It throws a lot at you really fast, and it wants you to understand the relationships really fast. I, I did kind of get that vibe from it, that you really do kind of have to pay attention. Like things just happen so quickly. You can sort of imagine this guy, he's going from scene to scene. He's trying to do this movie. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he's doing a great job, I think, in retrospect. And this is a classic. I mean, this is Pinhead, I think, is right between Freddy and Ghostface as iconic horror. Mm -hmm. If you go back to like Leatherface, Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy, you have to say Pinhead. And then um, Ghostface would be after that. Clive Barker hates the name Pinhead reportedly, and he wrote another novel called uh, The Scarlet Gospels much later, and he named Pinhead. Pinhead is actually called The Hell Priest, yep. just so you guys know. So the Cenobites are, are the characters that we keep talking about that show up at the end of this movie, and they're allegedly from a religious sect of hell known as the Order of the Gash. <laughs> The Order of the Gash. So the good. Order the of the Gash. Yeah. <laughs> My least and, favorite word. <laughs> and they are explorers in the further regions of experience. Uh, I mean, Cenobite really means a member of a communal r religious order. So that's what Barker was getting at. And yes, he hated he hated the name Pinhead. I, I have to disagree with him there. As dark as you just painted Barker, though, Trent... Everything I read about this movie just makes me want to hang out with Clive Barker because I think he's hilariously dark. He parties. He did so many things like like so there are a lot of good practical effects in Hellraiser and there's a, an ending sequence where the effects are absolutely terrible. And at this point, I think as fans of Hellraiser, we find them like kind of charming and we can chalk them up to like 1980s effects. But when he was asked about that, like how the effects at the end of the movie were so bad, he had run out of money. So he and a buddy that he's never named just went to his apartment and did all of them by hand. And Barker's quote is, oh, I thought they turned out very well considering the amount of alcohol consumed that weekend. <laughs> 
Uh, the first time his mother saw the movie, she was crying when his name was up as a Clive Barker film. And Barker actually leaned over and said to her, that's the happiest you'll be for the next two hours. Oh. <laughs> uh, he did so. He, there's so many things. I mean, this is all just out there on the Internet. But there's so many things that you can read about Clive Barker where, yes, obviously his mind is in a very dark place. But there's something about him that I'm like, I want to have a fucking beer with this guy. Like researching this movie elevated him up the list of people I want to sit down and have a drink with and be like, just talk to me, dude. Well, I had remember this movie being way more like fantastical than it was when I recently watched it. I loved how brutal and, and just straight up horror it was. And I, I think this was like the heyday for me because I was a big fan of Nightbreed as well. And Trent, you were talking about a, a Cronenberg, Clive Barker mashup. Um, doesn't David Cronenberg play the doctor? Yes. In Nightbreed? In, I yeah. forgot. Yeah, David Cronenberg <laughs> yes. is in Nightbreed. Yeah, so they. I'm surprised they haven't worked together uh, You know, on a, a David Cronenberg adaptation. Most of this movie is just savagery. And I saw on Amazon Prime that they just uh, put out... Um, because that, that's where I watch this. If you have Prime, it's also free. Oh, right. Um, they have his him and his college roommate um, made two films in film school. Yep. And and you can watch. It's from 1978. You can watch Clive Barker's uh, like film school project, which is a horror movie, I, and I believe it's like black and white. Yeah, there's two. There's two of those, and they're they're both available for uh, rental on demand. I know they're both rental on YouTube, and you can see them elsewhere. I, I haven't seen them, but yeah, those are both out there. I thought one of the main drivers of this movie that I didn't certainly pick up on back in 1987, which was interesting to me and very Clive Barker, is that it's like all this um, this like binary masculinity thing. The whole story is like Frank is the dark brother, the one who is seeking the all the sensual experiences he can. He's a he's a bad guy, you know. Frank is mm-hmm. a um, dark, pain loving sort of destructive character, and he drags Julia into that. Julia, of course, can't get enough of it. So that's like your like um, big dick energy guy, which <laughs> is. Is yeah. confusing though, <laughs> yeah. But other, otherwise known as uh, toxic masculinity. So it's like, well, I don't, mm. he's like, is he big dick energy or is he toxic masculinity? I I don't know the difference sometimes. And then his brother Larry, he is the classic, like em- emasculated, ineffectual, impotent sort of like cuck guy. Mm-hmm. He can't even get the bed delivered upstairs. This whole extended weird scene where. Frank and the movers are trying to get his bed, the bed of of him and his wife upstairs. And it's like stuck and it's jammed and he's like sweating and Julia is making him like a servant. Hey, by the way, the Doug Bradley who plays Pinhead, he was offered the role of Pinhead or the guy that's trying to push the bed up the stairs. And he he debated it because he thought... Well, if I do the guy that's pushing the bed up the stairs, my face will be seen. But if I do mm-hmm. Pinhead, I'll have to put all this makeup on. And in the 11th hour, he was like, uh, I should probably do Pinhead. 
Mm. Yeah, so that's that's a very important scene to the movie because while Larry is being totally emasculated with this bed moving scene and she's got him running beers to the movers and he even says like, oh, I got nothing, I'm not good for anything else around here or something like that. Uh, during that, she is fantasizing, his wife Julia is fantasizing intensely about his dark brother who she can't get enough of. Mm. So, you know, this movie kind of does that the whole way through and I think it's interesting like, you know, most people would call Larry in this movie a, a kind of undesirable character. They would say he's a he's a wimp. He he he's he has no confidence. He's you know he's a pushover. He's a, a wet noodle. You know he's a real loser. <laughs> okay, so like which which version? Noodle. I just you know which version of masculinity are you supposed to be? This is something that confronts men all the time. Like are, you're supposed to be like this nice guy and not be toxic. Oh, but you're just like a wimp mm. loser. Or you're supposed to be Here's like the, the big thing. dick guy, but you're like... I think Pinhead walks out You're line. toxic now, though, if you're Larry. So it's like, uh, you know, which is it? Here's the thing. Everyone wants the nice Larry guy until you need someone to throw you around a little bit. And then that's when the Frank comes in. Okay? Speaking of Frank... That's my hot take. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where Larry takes his daughter, Kirsty, who we haven't even talked about and is really... A, 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 very important character in the movie he takes her out to to dinner or lunch or something because she hates her stepmom who is uh the 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 woman that is now married to her dad and they moved into this house and she was boning frank that we've talked about on the wedding dress i liked that touch like not only do they show them having sex they have to show that they have sex on top of her wedding dress just if you weren't clear symbolism there's a scene where they go out to eat together and larry says to to kirsty about his wife, her stepmom, like it's like she's waiting for something, and I was, I, I, I was like, that is like li- that's smart script writing. It's really observant because that's right when she has discovered that Frank is now some escaped from hell creature that needs blood to survive. But the way that he delivers it was like, damn, you're very observant. So he's he's clearly portraying Larry as like. Uh, an observant and caring character in the movie and Frank yep, as loser. somebody that, that only takes. Yeah. And I realize I'm not breaking any ground with that assessment, but but like that's a very big part of the movie is Frank takes, he doesn't care. We see by the end of the movie, he really doesn't care. Uh, and Larry, <laughs> the entire movie was just trying to hold a familiar unit together. Frank has so much swagger that he still swagged around in the other guy's body. Yeah. <laughs> and and completely skinless. I mean, this guy's got the confidence like through the roof. Yeah. Completely She's like skinless. sucking he's on just his like, weird like, finger. Don't look at me. So a rib cage. And he's like, yeah, like touch me. Let's, let's go. And he's like trying to seduce her as a skeleton. Like, wow, good for you. I think we should talk, you know, the Cenobites get a bad rap, but I thought that the Cenobites in this were like pretty reasonable. They were like open to bargaining. Christy does the bargain. She in, uh, inadvertently opens the machon box uh, puzzle thing and <laughs> they come to get Christy. And Thank she, you for that. She offers them a deal and they're they're willing to negotiate, you know, at least outwardly. They're like, all right, well, mm-hmm. if you can bring this Frank guy back, maybe we won't come for you. We'll give you a chance to 
to deliver uh, Frank to us. And that's the source of a lot of th- this movie is like just like walking quote fest. You know, we already talked about pleasure and pain and divisible. There's the classic line. No tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Oh, did yeah. this movie like literally create come to daddy? Did Hellraiser create no, come no, to daddy? Definitely not. No. no. Or was that like 70s porn or something? That was like my great-great-grandfather, I think. (laughs) (laughs) When a man and woman are very much in love, they lie closely together. That's not how daddy works. I have a whole book for you. We can get together sometime. I'll put you right on my lap. All right, let's let's do that on the next Patreon. But back, back next to Patreon, Frank. I'm on Trent's lap, and we are. I'm getting educated. I would say that Frank is one of the most despicable characters that we've seen on he's the whole the podcast. Worst. Yeah, he's the but worst. Yeah, but he's he's hot. He's you know? such a d bag. You just show up wet in the rain. <laughs> Like, I'm here for your wedding. Let's fuck. And she's like, okay. Like, what? I don't get it. The bad boys, though, I mean, go for the fingers in the mouth. They keep yes. fear. They do. Yeah. They keep he also fear. put the fingers in the mouth. So Claire Higgins plays Julia that we're talking about. That is the the woman that she is She plays involved. an attractive woman. <laughs> like, she's the most 80s slash, oh, like, so 80s. not 80s thing I've ever seen Very in 80s. my life. Yeah. Being made in 87, I thought Hellraiser would be like way super 80s, but it actually feels more 70s to me if you removed her hair. Julia. The hair really killed it for me. I couldn't uh, Ugh, see Julia so as a bad. sexual person with that hairdo. I just like, Why? what? What is the helmet? The uh, mullet helmet? What was what wrong that? with the. Bad. A lot. I don't know bad. if that's good for her hair texture. She's like a bitchy Aunt Judy or something, and <laughs> she's not attractive physically or her personality's terrible, and she's manipulative. And She, she was kind of like a, a reverse let the right one in thing going on where, you know, it, it, we talked about that yeah, movie yeah. back on our first episode where the, the little girl vampire has her fake boyfriend out there getting her kills for her so that's julia's role in this she's going out to bars and like flirting with men and like bringing them back to the house so that so that uh, frank can dine on them and she's even helping him out with some hammer blows to the head and killing oh, these yeah. guys i think this is pretty personal for clive barker and i i get it like a lot of his work this is very similar to the midnight meat train where a lot of his stuff is about people that like can't let go of those dark pleasures those dark temptations you know and we see that in a lot of these movies but i think that's pretty personal and you'll find that in a lot of the clive barker stuff kirsty is the main character of the movie so the daughter of of uh larry that we're talking about is the main character of the movie she's the one that has to deal with the consequences of everything that's happened and she had nothing to do with it and i really really hate how Ashley Lawrence, that's the actress. She does a great job, but I don't like how quickly she connects. So everything you just said, Trent, is 100% accurate. But she connects the fact that the Cenobites are there for her because of Frank in like under 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. There's there's a plot line. Like, gap. Oh, this, there's a lot of things that aren't great about that. I love this movie. I think it's great. I watched too. it like Me three too. times Absolutely. just in the last week. It's so good. But there are a lot of things that aren't great about it. You say Christy is the main character, but she's hardly in the movie. She's the main character if that means 
at the end, she's the main character. Most of the movie is Larry, who I really wish somebody else had played. That was a real bone for me. Like, oh, he's bad I in this. Called him, I called him the best actor in the no, movie. Are you I, kidding me? I will me? fight you on that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I, if that had been a better actor, I think this would be... I mean, it, it's a classic. It's, it's canon, but uh, he really bothered me. Is it a uh, Clive Barker thing to just throw in some over-the-top stupid shit at the very end of all his stories? Because when the random ominous hom- homeless guy that didn't even really yeah. have much to do with the plot... He's just kicking around. I thought he was going to like save the day. Just eating crickets. He just lights on fire and turns into a pterodactyl skeleton there. and then goes into yeah. the sky and it's over. <laughs> like, really? Do we need all that? Again, this was a novella. It was like a little bit longer than a short story, but I think it's the same syndrome that hurt the midnight meat train. Now, you, you know, you have this story like they have to make, you know, this is a Hollywood feature. So now you get to tack some ending onto it. I am very sure, although it's been a long time, I don't think that happens in the uh, in the book. It was over. It was over. Like to me, the movie was over and it was great. And then all of a sudden there's this dragon or whatever it is <laughs> emerging from the fire. Like, what is this? I thought it was like a carry situation where they were standing outside the house because mm-hmm. the house was on fire. And I was like, oh, the From house what? burned down. And it took me like, like I mean, I've seen this movie a ton of times, but I was like, oh, they're standing out the house and the house burned down. What a terrible fire department they have in their town. And I was like, oh, no, now they're down at a homeless encampment and they're trying to burn the La Marchand box. Yeah, it just, and then, yeah. And then, then devil creature shows up, homeless guy slash devil creature shows up, and then taxi driver ending. I was very confused It by It turns into uh, a video by the 80s thrash metal band Overkill for no reason yes. at the last moment to just <laughs> put a little bit of a damper on the fun. Well, I mean, they also changed the entire setting from the UK to America. True, yes. They thought it would like sell more tickets. So they filmed the whole thing. So Frank, who we keep talking about, they had to overdub all of his dialogue in an American accent. So there's a lot, a lot of studio shit here, and, and in fact, there was a lot of studio shit with Midnight Meat Train too. Um, Clive Barker has never really gotten like his mainstream shot. This was it. I, I, I say this as I know the guy is financially a okay. <laughs> But I don't think he's ever gotten his like Stephen King shot, uh, and who knows? Like maybe someday he will. Uh, he's like but... he's like seventy now, by the way. He's the same age as Stephen King. I thought he was younger, but he's got plenty of great stories that could be turned into movies and be hits. Yes, his know? work will absolutely live on. There, there have been, there's been lots of talk of a reboot of Hellraiser, and yeah, I mean. He is with us. I think that's the ironic thing is that, like you said, Kevin, that he never took the crown, the mainstream household crown from Stephen King, but he is immortal in the world of horror film. Hellraiser, The Cenobites, Pinhead, Hellpriest, the nine sequels that I haven't seen. I thought the second one was great. But, you know, he he will be immortal in, in horror forever. So that's pretty cool. But, hey, probably more so than Stephen King, maybe, as far as the movies go. Ah, no, I don't. What character, what legendary character up there with Freddy and Ghostface and Leatherface and Mike Myers and uh, and Jason Voorhees, what what, what character did Stephen King contribute to horror film like those? 
Jack Torrance. Pennywise. Pennywise. Okay. Pennywise. Penny, I, I, I wouldn't put Pennywise quite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair. Mm-hmm. Very close. Pennywise is probably like the latest in that line. Sure. So after Ghostface, somewhere along the line, definitely Pennywise. All right. I like both of them, but when either one of them gets into the really like storybook other dimension stuff, I think that's better served on the page. Yeah. Because your imagination keeps it within the limits of what you think is good. When you're watching a movie, the interpretation of some of that stuff can be really corny. I, I think the really streamlined Stephen King stuff and the really streamlined Clive Barker stuff is the stuff that makes the best movies, uh, not the stuff that is, the, you know, the drawn-out sequels and uh, all this these convoluted fantastical stories. 